You can open up your Bible to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 10 today. We're going to try to tackle this whole chapter. It's 18 verses long, uh, so it's a big task, but I trust that God will help us to do that. But again, I want to say happy Father's Day to all of you uh, who are here in the room or who watched in via live stream. I hope that you're able to enjoy time with your earthly fathers if they're still uh, here on this planet uh, with us. hope that you can enjoy them, celebrate them, honor them uh, this morning. Uh, but as we come to this text today, a story from years ago was coming back to me. Uh, when my wife and I got married, we moved down to the Louisville, Kentucky area uh, for me to attend seminary. And Louisville sits right on the Ohio River. We actually lived across the river in Indiana. We grew up in Indiana, so we wanted to stay in Indiana uh, of sorts. So we lived in a town called New Albany, but our jobs and my school obviously took us over into Kentucky day by day by day. So we'd have to go over the bridges a lot uh, from Indiana to, uh, to Kentucky and vice versa. And I remember getting a phone call one of those mornings. My wife was an elementary teacher, and as she had headed across this bridge called the Sherman Minton Bridge on the west side of Louisville, uh, she she had been involved in a car accident and every, everything was fine. I was one of those types of accidents where uh, it's kind of a soft pile up, just a long line of cars that kind of hit the back of one another and nobody was seriously injured or anything. Uh, but for us as young adults, it was kind of eye-opening to start to see how insurance works and trying to get compensated for damage to our car and who's really responsible for this accident and that part of the accident and whatnot. And so that was frustrating enough. But one of the things that was very unique about that situation, because some of you may have been in fender benders or even big uh, accidents like that before, but one thing that was very unique about that had to do with the fact that it actually took place on a bridge between Indiana and Kentucky. And so as there was officers from each state and each locale there, they were uh, both writing their reports and what took place. And then as those would get submitted to insurance, the insurance company would call the Louisville police, and the Louisville police would say, you need to talk to the New Albany police. And the, when they would call the New Albany police, they would say, well, you guys need to talk to uh, the Louisville police to get the official word on that. And it was just like this um, hot potato going back and forth between them. And it was a, a very vivid example of how this is the point where we'll get at today's text, of how when there is a confusion about who actually has authority, uh, that there is stalling, that there's frustration, that there's confusion, when you don't know who is in charge, when you don't know where the buck stops, when you don't know who has jurisdiction here, it is not helpful. Uh, we as human beings need to know uh, who possesses authority in this sphere, who is in charge here, so to speak. And when we lack that, it's to our detriment, it's to our harm. Uh, this is true in the military, it's true in business, it's true in families, and it's true in churches as well, as we're going to see in today's text. The vital importance of knowing who possesses authority amongst a group of people and then knowing how that authority is to be exercised, how it's to be practiced. And so uh, we're going to look at this subject today through the lens of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the subject of proper authority. Who possesses it? How is it supposed to be practiced? But I want to catch you up to speed before we read this text. I know some of you have not been with us the last several weeks as we've been going through this letter, but a quick snapshot kind of in summary of where we are as we come to 2 Corinthians 10. This was written by the apostle named Paul. He was one that Jesus had, the resurrected Jesus had met and sent out to start churches and to proclaim the gospel. And one of the places that Paul had done that was in the city of Corinth. He had been the one humanly speaking, as we'll even see as we read this text today, 
He'd been the one, humanly speaking, that God had used to start this church, to preach the gospel, to see people come to faith, to see people be saved. Um, But years have passed now, and Paul has made a few visits to them, and there's been a mess of issues going on in this church, and Paul has written to address several of them. We don't have time to go back through them, but he's trying to write about to them about several issues. But the one that keeps coming back up to the surface in this letter is this issue of these teachers who have come into the church there at Corinth who are actually trying to discredit Paul. They're trying to slight him. They're trying to tell the people in that congregation, this guy, like, you really don't need to listen to him. He has some good stuff to say, but uh, there's some concerns we have about him. We don't really need to have him as authority in our life as a church anymore. We can uh, let him drift on to other places and other things. And we've seen some of their reasoning as we've gone through this letter, some of the reasons they're trying to put forward as why they can discredit Paul, a few of them we've seen early in the letter, like they thought, or we're trying to make an argument that he doesn't keep his word, that he says he'll do one thing and then does something different. So they're questioning his character. Uh, they are questioning even the amount of suffering that goes on in his life. They're saying, look at this guy, like he's whipped and beaten and shipwrecked and arrested and he's about to die, like, but he's telling us Jesus is king of all and like he can give us eternal life. What a joke. And they're, they're trying to discredit him even by, because of the amount of suffering that's taking place in his life. As we come to chapter 10, we're going to see one more reason, one more kind of piece of data they're trying to bring forward to this church to say, we don't need to listen to Paul. He has no authority here. And it's going to be this issue we're going to see right from the beginning of today's text, this issue of how he speaks when he writes versus how he speaks when he's actually with them in person. And they're going to say, man, this guy talks a big game when he writes us these letters and he's real firm and strong and almost aggressive and severe towards us when he writes these letters. But then when he comes and he's in person, face to face, he's real soft and weak and passive. And they're saying, what kind of guy is that? What kind of leader is that that we need to follow? He has no authority. He's not even consistent in how he speaks to us. And these teachers have been trying to undermine Paul over and over again. Most of the church, praise God, most of the church in Corinth had actually started to come back into approval of Paul. They had started to say, you know what, teachers who are trying to tell us to discredit him, we don't buy what you're selling. We believe him, we follow after him, but there's still some who are persisting in this. There's still some who are persisting in trying to undermine Paul, undercut his authority as an apostle, and Paul is about done with it. Like he's about to be done with the patience that he's extended to these teachers over and over again. And when he gets to what we call chapter 10, he gets very direct and very uh, confrontational towards those teachers who are persisting in this, of saying not to listen to him. So I want to, now that we're caught up to speed, I want to read chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, this whole chapter. And as I read it, I'd encourage you to listen for how Paul defends his ministry how he defends his apostleship, uh, and then how he describes how he practices his work as an apostle. You can see both of those things. So this is the word of God. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostle Paul continued his letter by writing this. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he's Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord this is the word of God. I want to summarize today's text as we walk back through it under two really simple sentences. They're three, three words long each. Uh, the first one's going to be this. is to recognize proper authority. Recognize proper authority. And the second's going to be to exercise authority properly. So to recognize proper authority is going to be first. And the second's going to be to exercise authority properly. Like once you actually possess authority, you should exercise it properly. And I think we see both of those. Priority I want to give, though, to this first, uh, first summary statement, to recognize proper authority. That's the big heart of Paul in this chapter, is to help this church recognize who really has authority over them, humanly speaking, who God has entrusted authority to, right? That's his chief concern here. And what you see, the way he does this, I'm going to start more towards the end of the text, and then as we go on, we'll kind of move back towards the beginning of it. But you see as this text kind of gains steam, Paul starts using these terms, uh, commending yourself. You see that phrase a couple of times? He talks about how these people commend themselves, and he's contrasting that with people who God commends. And he's saying those don't always overlap. The, the people who commend themselves is not always who God commends as the people who actually have authority. The people who claim authority aren't actually given it sometimes by God. And so you see that first, I'll point out in verse 12, right? He, talks, he says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. So there's this statement where he's saying uh, there in verse 12 uh, that 
they compare themselves with each other. They measure themselves by each other. Uh, he, so he's saying they kind of vouch for themselves. <laughs> like they, they say, hey, we have been given this authority by God. You should respect us. And they're just like claiming it based on how they relate to each other. They, they look around and say, how do we compare with each other? How do we compare with these other earthly teachers and how strong we think we are, how effective we think we are? And we think we're pretty good. Like we, we've proven our merits. You need to listen to us. There's a saying in the book of Proverbs that appears in various ways where Solomon to his sons talks about people who were wise in their own eyes. You've probably heard that phrase. These teachers at Corinth were that. Uh, they, they were wise in their own eyes. That They were claiming for themselves, we are wise. We have a corner on the market of knowledge. We've been given this insight. We've been given this ability by God. Listen to us. And they're claiming it themselves, Paul says, at the end of verse 12. He says, without understanding. They're claiming this authority. They're claiming that God commends them. But really, they're just commending themselves. And I, I, one commentator, I was reading his thoughts on, the, on this text, especially verse 12, about how they commend themselves, but they're really just doing it by comparing themselves to each other and fellow humans' abilities. Uh, he said it'd be kind of like, a ma- this is a paraphrase, kind of like a man with one eye, commending like how great his vision is just because he's comparing to fellow one-eyed people maybe pirates that have the patch over that he's comparing himself to others who just have one eye and saying i can see as well as them or i can even see better than blind people like who have no eye like look at how good my vision is and they're they're just comparing themselves with peers and forgetting that doesn't mean anything just the fact that you are better in your own eyes than other unintended, not intended, better in your own eyes, uh, than other people, other peers, does not mean that you are actually commended by God. The very fact that you're just comparing yourselves to others means nothing. Because after all, there's people with two eyes, right? Who see better than you. Who God's given better vision than you. Just because yours is better than others does not mean it is best. And Paul says then, as he continues down in this text, you see this phrase again, this commending themselves in verses 18 at the end of the text and even the verse before it the idea is there where Paul is saying that we should if we're going to boast if we're going to assert ourselves if we're going to claim authority he says we shouldn't boast in ourselves but boast in the Lord boast in his credibility his his authority not just in one that we possess ourselves and he uses that phrase again in verse 18 he talks about the one who commends himself one who vouches for himself, puts himself forward as having authority. Paul is saying in verse 18, just because someone does that does not mean that they have God's approval. Just because they're claiming authority over a group of people doesn't mean that God has given them that authority. Right? And that's important for us to note. And Paul is trying to hammer that with them. I couldn't help but think of another story. It's actually one I've heard only secondhand. And I'm not going to say names because I, I didn't ask the people if I could share this. Uh, but I think it's a funny story. But it illustrates the point of how absurd self-commendation can be. So before I worked here, there was a position that the church, our church was trying to hire for. Uh, some of you may have been around and maybe have heard this story. Uh, I don't know if legend has grown about this story. But they were interviewing a lot of people uh, for this position. 
And it was a lot of people from outside the church. And the guy I'm about to refer to did not get hired, uh, never ended up being part of our church. But they were interviewing these people uh, for this position uh, to work with our student ministries. And uh, they had this system. So there were several of them that were part of the interviewing process. uh, And they had this bowl that they would sit kind of within reach. I don't know if there was one in front of all the interviewers or just one kind of in the middle that they could all reach that had mints in it. And they had said amongst themselves uh, before the interview started they said like if any of you have like inclinations like yeah this dude is not the guy like for whatever reason like grab a mint and like that'll be a signal to us that something they said was concerning to you or like that's kind of like a red flag that you can wave subtly discreetly to us and there was this one guy uh who came in and from what i have heard he was just i'll say it kind of it was was very self-confident in him, like, in who he was and his ability and his experience. And he was, like, just saying how great of a teacher he is and how wonderful and gifted and experienced he is and all this stuff that he has to offer. And one of the sisters in our church, I, I, would, I wish I could be, have been a fly on the wall. Uh, as this guy was talking, uh, sh- this is what I've heard, is that she reached towards the bowl and grabbed a whole handful of mints <laughs> up out of the bowl and like put them in front of herself. And it was like a very clear indicator if there was any doubt amongst the people in the room. Yeah, this dude is just commending himself, but even as he does, it's concerning uh, at the least, if not disqualifying. But that guy is a caricature of somebody, even as he was pursuing church ministry, he was commending himself, overextending, overplaying his hand, talking about how gifted and talented he is. And he didn't even have eyes to see. He was probably comparing himself to other peers, other people he thought ill of and seeing himself as above them. But it does not take long for people to see through that and to see if a person is just commending themselves, that doesn't mean they're actually commendable, Right? And we know that, um, but Paul is trying to drive that point home with this church to not just commend themselves or be impressed by other people who commend themselves, but to really see who does God commend? Like who has he given authority to? Who has he given ability to? And interestingly, in this chapter, as Paul talks about not commending yourself, you probably notice he actually does commend himself. Right? That feels ironic. He, he's trying to defend himself and his place as an apostle. He does commend himself and his place in the life of that church. But he's not doing it in a prideful way. He's not doing it by just saying these skills that he possesses and these abilities that he has that are so superior to every. He is commending himself because Christ has commended him. He's commending himself and claiming his authority in the life of this church because he knows it's been given to him by God, not just earned by him, by his skills and his rhetoric and his, his giftedness. And so I want to point out a couple ways he defends himself give a, and then give a couple points of uh, uh, application. So a couple of points of evidence where Paul is commending himself and saying he actually does have authority in the life of this church. If you look at verse 8, he talks about this hypothetical of if he could boast a little too much of the authority that he possesses. He says, I wouldn't be bothered by that, right? Like, if I, if I could, uh, I wouldn't be ashamed by boasting more of the role that God has given to me, claiming authority over you as a leader of your church, even from afar. But the reason that he can say that, that, that he's willing to boast of his role in the life of the church, notice this in the middle of verse 8, he's talking about his authority. He says, which the Lord gave. That's the reason he can claim authority is because it was given to him by Christ. 
It's not just something he claimed for himself, but that authority was given to him by Jesus. And that's the ground that he stands on to say, I have authority here. Not because I'm wonderful and great, but because Christ has installed me as such. And we should remember, the man who wrote this letter was met by the resurrected Jesus, right? On the road to Damascus, this enemy of the gospel who was killing Christians. The resurrected Jesus came and met him face to face. And he changed him and he commissioned him to go with the gospel, to go preach to the nations, to go start churches. And Paul would not have done that on his own. He was persecuting them. But Christ calls him, gives him authority to do that, and so he starts doing it. He's commissioned by Jesus to this very work. That's why he has authority. So then as he gets to his last paragraph, verses 13 to 16, you may have noticed three times Paul uses this phrase, area of influence. Uh, he, He talks about his area of influence. And he says in verse 13, he says, We'll not boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence, and hear this language again, God assigned to us to reach even to you. So he's saying, hey, God has given me this area of influence. He's given me this sphere where I have authority. But it's the only reason that I have that authority is because God gave it to me. God assigned it to me. I didn't like earn it. I didn't muster up skills and giftedness and practice to become it. It was given to me by God. It was assigned to me. And he says this area of influence that, that God has given to him has expanded even to include the city of Corinth. And this church that God used him, humanly speaking, to help establish, to preach the gospel to them, help them come to faith, help them know how to live as Christians. And what he's implying then in verse 14, when he says, we are not overextending ourselves as though we didn't reach you. What he's implying is that these false teachers in Corinth are doing that. They're overplaying their hands. They're, they're acting like Paul's area of influence is theirs. That they're, they're in, a sen- in essence, like pretending that they were the ones that God used to establish this church, that they have authority, that maybe Paul used to have Corinth under his area of influence, but now it's under ours. And Paul is saying, no, like God has given this area of influence to me. He's entrusted me with authority here. He's entrusted me with the responsibility of seeing this church started and seeing it cared for as long as he gives me breath. So Paul knew that any authority he had was because it was given to him. It was assigned to him by God, not just claimed by him because he thought he was impressive. So we need to make sure as we operate in church life and in life in general that we recognize people who are proper authorities. That, that we see the relationships we have the way that God sees them, not just how people claim we should see them. Not just because people think they should be respected, but we need to actually respect and honor the people that God has installed, that he has given authority in our life. So the first word of application of this heading, I've just encouraged each of us as believers is to very simply honor the God-ordained authorities in your life. Honor the people that God has installed as authorities. On this Father's Day, I can't help but think of one of the Ten Commandments, right, from Exodus 20, where, and this is not just a command given to five-year-olds, it's given to 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds. One of the commands that God gave to his people was to honor your father and mother, right? To show honor to them. They are instituted by God. They were given to you, or more likely you were given to them, uh, as authorities in your life. And some don't handle it well. Some don't wield that authority well, but we are still called to honor them and respect them to the best of our ability. And so I would encourage us on this Father's Day to make sure that we are doing that, that we are honoring our fathers, that we are honoring the mothers in our life that God has given authority. 
but even within church life. Uh, I would encourage us, and I know this is self, could feel self-serving to some, but I would encourage us to honor the people within the, the life of a congregation that God has installed as leaders, that God has installed as having authority in the life of a local church. Um, most regularly, that, that as you look through the rest of the New Testament, we don't have apostles anymore, I don't think, but we do have elders within the church that have been given God, uh, God, given by God authority in the life of a church to care, to teach, to counsel, to shepherd, to to govern even, to oversee the life of a congregation. And there's reason in the New Testament, numerous times we're called to show respect to our leaders. Hebrews 13 says to obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That is not just something that is grasped for by men to serve as elders, but it's something that's entrusted to us by God. And we take that very seriously. Like that, that we are accountable to him for how we shepherd you and care for you and guide you. And we love doing that. But I encourage you to show honor to the God-ordained authorities in your life. And I thank God that you do. Uh, I, I thank you on behalf of our pastors. So honor authorities in your life. But also I'd encourage us to not claim authority for ourselves that God has not given to us. That is such a temptation for us as human beings is to claim for ourselves authority in some sphere that God has not actually granted to us. Uh, we, we, don't, we are not often, it's rare I would say, in our culture to be content with the area of influence God has assigned us. Like usually we are not content with that. Like, we want to have a bigger platform. We want to have more people under our oversight. We want to have a promotion at work. We want to have a more prominent role. We want to have a bigger property. We want to have a bigger family, whatever. Like, we always want to see, and Paul wanted his area of influence to expand, right? But he was also content with the area of influence God had given to him. And we need to have a contentedness with whatever area of influence God has given to us. And it is not wrong to be ambitious. It can be noble and righteous to be ambitious and long for that sphere to grow. But if you are wanting it to grow without being content with where it is right now, you are on dangerous footing. If you're just longing for more authority and starting to pretend like you have authority you don't have, you are going down dangerous paths that these teachers at Corinth were going down and Paul is telling them to stop. Like stop pretending that you have authority that you do not have. That is so important for us. I think of, and just and outside of church life, I think of, just on a relational level, boyfriends who want to act like husbands when they're not the husband, right? Or peers and coworkers who want to act like the boss, the one who's the supervisor, but they really don't possess authority. They're so, the, the kids who want to claim the authority of the parents, right? Like we are always wanting to exert authority that is not ours to pretend that we are the ones in charge when we are not. God has not entrusted that to us now and may not ever. This is important though within church life specifically. I've noticed this as a younger pastor myself. It's a concern that I have as I look forward in time with the rise of the internet and just the interconnectedness of the church at large, which can be a wonderful thing. It is becoming a temptation for, for Christians to look right over the heads of the pastors in their life and to start to find spiritual authorities out in the world who don't know them, who have no authority over them, and to give authority to them to say, hey, tell me how I should live. I'm going to listen to you for guidance. I'm going to go to you for advice. I'm going to just lean on your counsel and don't even show regard really or pursuit for the leaders that are within their own life, the, the spiritual leaders that God has placed directly in their life. 
We need to not cede authority to people that God hasn't granted it, right? To not give authority to people who don't possess it in our life. So Paul defends his authority. He wants this church to recognize his authority as given to him by Christ, to show respect to him, to honor him as a leader, as a teacher, as an authority in the life of the church. But what the second half of what I want to show you is back mostly up towards the beginning of the text, is I want you to see some, get a window into how Paul actually exercised that authority, like how he actually used it, not just to claim it like, yep, God's given it to me, I can use it how I want, but you get a window into how he actually used it, how he wielded that authority, and I think we can learn, whether we're pastors or whether we're leaders in any context, we can learn a bit of how to wield authority when we actually do possess it. When God's given it to us, we should come to a text like this and think, how do I use it? Like, how do I actually wield it? Because it's not just mine to use however I want. So the second heading would be to exercise authority properly. You can see earlier in this text, there's some accusations that these leaders are making against Paul, right? If you look at verse 10, uh, Paul is basically quoting these false teachers that are there in Corinth, and he says that they are saying about him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. And basically what they're, they're trying to argue is like what I alluded to earlier is that, hey, this guy talks a big game when he's far away and doesn't have to look me in the eye. He talks real strong and firm when he's using a, a pen and ink, so to speak. But when he's face to face, he's more operating like a coward. He's timid. He's afraid almost of us. And Paul, I think, knows that there is a little seed of truth in what they're observing. Uh, because if you look back even at verse 1, He kind of claims that for himself, doesn't he? And I don't think he's doing it ironically. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And he says this about himself. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. He's owning that in some capacity. When I'm away from you and I'm writing letters, I am more bold. And when I'm with you face to face, when I've been with you recently, I have been more humble and more, uh, more, not timid, but more humble toward you. And so he, he's acknowledging that there's some truth to that. But what he is concerned about is the, if, I would say it this way, is how the false teachers are trying to depict why he acts that way. If you, if you look, for example, look at uh, verse 2. Look at verse 2, okay? The, the end of verse 2. He, so he's just acknowledged, hey, I am humble when face to face, but bold when I'm away. And then he says, I beg of you when I'm present that I may not have to show boldness with the confidence I count on showing. And then hear this phrase. He says, against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So that's, he knows that those teachers that, that are trying to undermine him are trying to say, Paul, the reason he's like firm in this venue and soft in this one is because he's just operating according to the flesh. Like he's just trying to use tactics and, and uh, just maneuver with us uh, to get us to do what he wants to do. And so the way that they're depicting him is that he's a coward. That, that at, at his heart he's a coward, but he wants to pretend to be strong. And so he kind of hides behind letters and distance, kind of like in today's world. I've heard the phrase where people like to be keyboard warriors. Have you heard of this phrase? Like they like to sit at a computer on a phone and like talk this big game. And then when they actually come to talk to people, it's like, 
no bite. Uh, all bark, no bite. That's like what they're saying he was the ancient equivalent of, that they're just trying to, they were actually, really actually, he was really actually a coward and weak, but he's trying to pretend to be strong. He's trying to manipulate us and get us to think he's one thing when he's really the other. They think he's trying to intimidate from afar, to manipulate them, to control them with his written words, and then he has nothing to back it up when he actually comes. And I'm guessing they may have suspected of Paul that he was just unwilling to give up the authority that he used to have. Like the kind of like there's this new sheriff in town, these new teachers here, us who are prominent, and Paul just isn't willing to let it go. They think he's operating according to the flesh, not righteously. That he's not doing this strength and boldness and then humility for good reason, but to be deceptive and manipulative and controlling. As Paul is saying, that is the furthest from the reason that I'm doing that. There is reason that I'm bold when I'm far away and humble when I'm present, but it's not because what you think. I'm not trying to just manipulate. He says uh, that he is not, if you look at verse 3, he says we are not waging war according to the flesh. That is not what we are doing. Uh, we, We are doing it for purposeful reasons. When we confront you about things, we are doing it on purpose, and we are, I am doing it for good reason. He knows that he's bold. He knows that at some points he knows he's humble at others, but he's doing it purposefully. There are times like verse 1 when he comes to them, he approaches them with meekness and gentleness of Christ. Uh, That he wants that to be a marker of his ministry. But he also knows as an apostle that God has entrusted with authority in this church that when people perpetually disregard Jesus, when they've been confronted and they continue to undermine his authorities and they undermine his word and they undermine his gospel, he knows that there is firmness that needs to come as well. That there is boldness that needs to come as he exercises his authority. But he leads with gentleness. He leads with meekness. I love in verse 8, you get a little window into how he viewed his authority that God had given. He says, which the Lord, talking about his authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. That is what he wants to be foremost in his mind is I want to build you up. Like I, I want your faith to grow. I want you to pursue Jesus. I want you to love him and function as his people together. That is what Christ has given him authority to do first and foremost, right? And so he comes gently. He comes kindly. He comes meekly to teach them the way of Christ. But it is so fascinating in this text that he starts with, hey, I entreat you by meekness and gentleness and I'm humble uh, when I come to you in person that he starts to talk about warfare and destruction, right? As he gets down into verse 3 and 4 and 5, he talks about waging war and using weapons, not of the flesh, but ones that have divine power. And he talks about strongholds that need to be torn down and lofty ideas, right? Lofty opinions that are raised up against the knowledge of God. He knows that even within the life of a church, that there can start to be teachers who build up obstacles for people to actually know Christ, for people to actually believe the gospel. And Paul's saying, when that happens, you better believe I am tearing it down. Like, I am not going to tolerate people to build up things that are going to keep people away from Jesus, that are going to keep people from knowing God. And I don't care who they are. I don't care what sort of authority they claim. If that is happening, I am tearing it down. Like, I, I am coming after it. I will come to the people meekly and gently, but when they set themselves up against Jesus or lead others away from him, I am coming after them. And he, he's not skittish about that. He, he's not 
eager to flex on them, so to speak. He's not just, that's not his first instinct to just snap at people and flex his muscles and be aggressive towards them, but he is more than willing to do it. And that is an important part of authority, especially within the church, but in, in various domains, when we're given authority, that we must be willing uh, to be both humble and bold. Right? That we need to be willing to be gentle and meek and lead with those things, but we need to have a willingness to destroy arguments, to tear down lofty opinions that are lifted up against Jesus. And Paul wants them to know, if you look at verse 6, it seems so out of step with how he says his ministry is meek and gentle typically. He says in verse 6 that he is ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So the idea there is I've confronted you. I've done it again and again. At some point, the opportunity to obey is going to have been completed. Like that that time to repent, to be restored is going to be done. He says when that point comes, he is ready to exercise punishment to these people, to these false teachers who are continuing to lead people away from Jesus. There's a, a pastor named Charles Hodge who wrote about this verse. He said, there was slumbering in Paul's arm and energy they would do well not to provoke. I thought that was well said, that that Paul wasn't eager to smash and to tear down, uh, but he was willing to do that, and he wasn't fearful to do it. He wasn't skittish about doing it. He was willing, and he doesn't tell us exactly what that will look like, but he says, I'm ready to do it. If you guys continue in undermining me and undermining the gospel of Jesus. I think we can learn from Paul this importance of being both humble, to use his words from verse 1, as we have authority, to be humble and to be bold. Those are both important. If you have a domain where God has given you authority, it's important that you be humble and that you be bold. Those are essential. Because authority is not just ours to use as we want, to do with what we want. We're to use it the way Jesus calls us to use it and to follow his example. So I'd encourage you and think of the domains where you have authority in your life. I'd encourage you to be humble as you exercise that authority. If you have been given authority over a person or a group of people, especially within the church, it is for the sake of their good. Not just for the sake of you promoting yourself and for you looking certain ways and getting applause and getting accolades. If you have been given authority, it's for the good of the people who are under your authority. Not just for you. It's not for your ego to show how smart and strong and superior you think you are. It's for the good of those under your care. And your leadership in exercising that authority should be marked by meekness, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Those are rare things in our world today, aren't they? Meekness and gentleness in leaders. But that is what Paul is saying he leads with. And that should be what all Christians lead with when they've been given authority is meekness and gentleness. That should be what is foregrounded in our life and in our leadership. And do not have a quick trigger finger with people. Do not have a quickness to be harsh and diminishing and belittling to people. Don't be easily frustrated with people and just asserting your authority as a quick fix for people. But be willing to be patient and gracious as you relate to the people under your authority. We need to be humble, but we also need to be bold. We also, when we've been given authority over a person or a group of people, we must never give in to the temptation to let humility be a cover for cowardice. Right? We can do that sometimes, where we think, oh, I'm just going to be perpetually meek and gentle towards these people, even when they are repeatedly disobedient to Jesus. When they are repeatedly defying him and going against him, we can just pretend, well, uh, for the sake of peace and love, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to smile and be nice. And Paul is saying, no, like that's what I lead with, but that's not my only weapon. 
Like that there is judgment that will come. Jesus himself will judge the nations someday, right? The one who is gentle and meek, he will someday bring the judgment of God upon people. And we've been given authority. We can't be skittish about that and shrink from that when people need, people need help. They need correction. They need guidance. We all do. Even the people with authority need that, right? Uh, but we need to provide that to people. We need to not just be passive, And I would say this, if you have demonstrated that first thing, demonstrated humility to the people under your authority, when you need to demonstrate boldness, it will go down a lot smoother. It won't guarantee it, but if you've been humble and gentle and kind to the people under your authority, when you need to be firm, it will go much better. It it will be, hopefully, uh, God can use your gentleness and kindness as a means of grace to prepare them to hear the things that are hard, to hear the, the hard things that you need to say to them. I want to say just a special word to fathers about this and then I want to wrap up by pointing to verse 18. To all the dads that are in the room or or listening today, I I think this idea of being humble and being bold is really something I want to impress upon you today in your role as a dad. Uh, that, That you need to be both of those things in relationship to your children. You need to be humble towards them, but you need to be bold towards them. You have been given, if you are a father, you have been given authority over the children in your family. You've been entrusted with them by God himself. And first and foremost, you need to be humble toward them, to be meek and gentle towards them. And you need to, like Paul, you need to to want to see around them and in them a a construction of not thoughts that are anti-God, but thoughts that build them up towards God, that help them know the gospel, that help them know the, the love of their Savior Jesus who came for them and died for them. You need to set an example for them. You need to stoop down to spend time with them and speak to them and, and enter their world. You need to be humble towards the children that God has entrusted to you. But you also need to have a willingness to be firm with them and to not just think that the way of fatherly love is just always to sit back and just watch them make a wreck of their life, to watch them do things that are knowingly disobedient to their mom or to the law or to, to God himself. There, there is a time and a place for us, and it should happen consistently, where we are intervening, where we are entering in as fathers to not just be humble and meek and gentle towards our children, but to be firm, to be directive of them, to call them to repentance, to call them to be captive to obedience of Christ. And when we see the world trying to bring up things that are opposed to God around them, when we see their friends, when we see the media, when we see uh, things that they're reading, when, that they're watching, when we, when we see th- things being built up, arguments being built up in their minds and hearts and being told to them that are going to distract them from Jesus, we need to have a willingness and courage to tear those things down. And not just watch it be built up around our kids and just watch them slip into disobedience and disregard of Jesus. We need to be willing to lovingly help them deconstruct those things and then build up their faith in Christ by teaching them the word. In Ephesians, Paul said to dads, he said, Fathers, and this speaks directly to be humble, be bold. He said, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right? Dads, may we exercise our authority as dads well, that we're humble towards our children, but where we are bold with them as well.
I want to end today's sermon by pointing you to the very last verse here, verse 18. Uh, This text, this chapter is largely addressing, Paul's concern is largely in this chapter addressing human relationships, like who has authority here. I want you to recognize people who have proper authority, but I can't help but think as he gets to verse 18 and the language that he uses that there's more of a vertical orientation to what he's talking about of receiving approval and commendation, not just from fellow human beings, but from God himself, right? That's what he's saying even in verse 17. Paul ends this chapter by saying, verse 17 into 18, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And on Father's Day, my mind goes to, even as I prayed before the sermon, to our Heavenly Father and what He thinks of us. What He thinks of you. And there, there's something in us as human beings that longs for the approval of our father, of our earthly father, right? Something in us. I think we can try to weed it out, but it is there. Like we long for the approval, the affirmation of the earthly father in our life. Sometimes we receive it and sometimes we don't. But I think that is a picture. God put that within us because he wanted us to have a longing for his approval, for his affirmation as our heavenly father. We need that. We were made with a need for that. And I want you to think about the day that will inevitably come when you will stand before our Heavenly Father. Like when you stand before Him for judgment. The Bible speaks very clearly that day will come. I want you to think about whether God the Father will approve of you. Whether you'll have His affirmation as the Heavenly Father. Because that matters more than anything. And it will matter for all eternity whether you have his approval. And using the language of verse 18, I think many of us, when we imagine that day, that time when we will stand before him for judgment, the way that we will try to muster his approval, the way that we think we will get it, is by commending ourselves. By saying, man, I lived as best as I could. Like I know I did a bad job at a lot of stuff, but I did the best that I could. I tried hard, I I would go to church, I took my kids there, I worked hard, I tried to be honest, I tried to be generous. I know I sinned and I'm so sorry, but I did my best. And we imagine commending ourselves to the Heavenly Father. And I want to say as lovingly as I can to you, that means nothing. That will not gain his approval. It is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends, right? If you are going before the judgment seat of God, that will, you will someday stand it, and you are imagining commending yourself and receiving his approval, I want to rid you of that idea. Because we are all guilty. We are all rebels against our Heavenly Father. We all have sin on our record, and we need someone else to commend us to God if we're going to get his approval. We need someone else to stand up for us, someone else to, to commend us to our Heavenly Father. And I want to tell you the best news, because that's bad news that I just gave you. The best news is that there is someone who can commend you to our Heavenly Father. There is someone who can act as an advocate for you. Not to say how good you are and how wonderful your life was, but to plead something different on your behalf. And that's the person of Jesus. God's one true son, his one absolutely, truly, legitimate son, Jesus Christ. 
He is the advocate that we need. He's the advocate that you need if you're going to be approved of by God. And he is a worthy advocate. He is the son of God who became a human being to live like us. Right? And in his life, he lived perfectly as a two-year-old, as a 20-year-old, as a 30-year-old. He obeyed through all situations and circumstances and temptations of life. He obeyed perfectly. So he does have credentials with God the Father, right? He has lived a life that's worthy of reward and of God's approval. He has lived that, right? But when he went to the cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, when Jesus went to the cross, what he was doing was he was taking the sins of us, our rebellion, our disobedience to our Heavenly Father, he was taking that upon himself. And God the Father punished him in our place, not for his sins, but for ours. He dealt with our sins. He dealt with our rebellion against him by laying those sins on Jesus and punishing him in our place. And then he was laid in a tomb and then God the Father raised him back up from the dead, right? As a way to show everybody who would ever hear of him, I approve of him. And I approve of what he just did. I am showing you all I approve of him. He has my approval. And so he raised him back up to the de- from the dead and then brought him back to heaven. And right now, presently, as I speak, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father with his full approval. Right? And the good news for you is that Jesus says, if you will turn from your sin, like if you will repent of it, forsake it, give it up, and you will place your trust in him, Jesus says, I will be your advocate with God the Father. Like, I will bring you with me to him. You can come with me. And you can have his commendation with God the Father. Not your own, which means nothing. But you can have the commendation of Jesus Christ, the one who has God's ear, who has God's approval. You can have that today. That one who has full authority over all things, Jesus, can bring you with him to be restored to God the Father. And my prayer truly is, as I pray at the beginning of this Father's Day, would be the day that you take him up on that. That you stop any illusion that you can commend yourself to God. And that you let Jesus commend you to God. Right? I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing. So why don't you stand up? We're going to pray, and we're going to sing one more song uh, before we're dismissed. But let's pray to that God uh, with whom we have an advocate even now. Father in heaven, we come to you thankful for our advocate, your son Jesus. God, may you forgive us for our efforts to commend ourselves to each other, to to take authority that is not ours, to even try to take your authority and act as if we are God. We pray that you would forgive us and we pray that Jesus would become the advocate for everyone in this room. That he would intercede for us, that he would commend us to you. I pray that as we remember his advocacy, as we remember his commendation and the approval we can have through him, I pray that it would just feel joy and thankfulness in our hearts today and for all eternity. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's sing together.